We're in a, in a series um, we're calling God First Identity, in which we're thinking not only about putting God first, but how putting God first shapes who we are and how we see ourselves. So this week, as I was um, rolling with my homies, which is a one-year-old and an eight-year-old, Tupac came on. Anybody listen to Tupac in middle school? Nothing makes me feel more like a rebellious middle schooler fighting the power than Tupac. So I didn't turn him off. I didn't know any of the lyrics, I promise you. Don't strike me down. This is one of his famous songs, though. Uh, Only God Can Judge Me. And uh, I really, I, you know, I've talked about this before. This has been one of those things that I've, I've brought up before, this, this phrase, only God can judge me, because we use that. And we use this especially today in which we think about so frequently, um, who am I responsible to or who am I responsible for? We ask that question. In fact, in many ways, we deny that I'm responsible to anybody. And that's what that, that phrase, only God can judge me, is meant to communicate. It's meant to communicate that I don't owe you anything. I am who I am. That was a Popeye thing, wasn't it? We're all over the place this morning. If you haven't prayed for me yet, start now. My point is to say that we have a problem that faces us in that, in that question. What am I, who am I responsible to and what am I responsible for? And uh, part of what the scriptures exist to do is to elucidate that for us. To explain it, to, to lay it out so that, that we can know and if you haven't uh, been with us throughout this series, let me recap the story real quick. This is what the book of Deuteronomy is all about. It's, it's set in this time where God has brought his special people, his treasured possession, his new culture. And he has brought them to the, the River Jordan, and they are about to go in, and they're about to take this land here, the promised land, the land that God has promised to give them. And as they move into this territory, there is, as you can see, all of these different Groups of people, these other cultures, full of their own languages, their own religions, their own values, and their own goods. What is the good, the beautiful, and the true? Each one has its own answer. And the book of Deuteronomy is recapping what God has already told them through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. He is retelling the story. Moses is retelling the story so that as they get into the land, and as they are surrounded by all of these other answers to who are you responsible to, and what are you responsible for. They know what God wants from them. That's what God is trying to do. So, um, as, you, as we move into our text this morning, that's kind of what I'm after. That's what we're, I want to talk about. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's all right. Grab one from the pew in front of you, and you can follow along. I'm on the same page, 164. Just pop it open. It's that first column. And you'll notice by the big 2-2 two, two, that... Uh, this version, anyway, if you're using the Pew Bible, it calls this section Various Laws, which is just inspiring you to read it, isn't it? Various Laws. Let's pick up a book and read the various laws. I think it's actually really cool, but as you already know, we're, I'm a strange person. I don't think this is just various laws. This isn't like a bag of jelly beans, like you can just reach in and pull out the orange ones, which are the best ones. Can I get a witness? Don't, not, don't shake your head at me. You know I'm right. Red and yellow come next. Purple at the end. Throw them out. 
When I read various laws, I immediately thought of jelly beans. I must have been hungry or something at the time. I don't know. But that's not what's going on here. There's more going on than just various laws. Rather, these are laws that all have some kind of intersection with the idea that we are responsible to different groups of people. We are groups of people, persons. I don't know exactly how to put that right, but maybe I can get at it with this. We are responsible to God for our actions. The things that God commands us to do, we're responsible for that. But we're not just responsible to God alone. We're also responsible to the community of faith around us, to the people, to the world around us. There are certain duties and and things that we are called to be a part of that hold us accountable here. And then we are also accountable to the land or the, the, the people here are going to be accountable to the land in the book of Deuteronomy. You're going to have to tend the land. You're going to have to take care of the land. There are laws that we might call ecological laws here in this chapter. All of these circle around um, who we owe. So let's dive into these texts. And I, I, So this will be a little bit scattered as we go through. A lot of times sermons have one theme or one, one, kind of one, one place we're headed. This has got various laws within it and... Uh, and so we'll just kind of play with it. But this is where, this is, this is the, the kind of the, 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 land surround, the landscape surrounding these laws. So looking at Deuteronomy 20, 22, verses 1 through 4. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you, and you do not know where he is, you shall bring it home to your house, and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. You shall do the same with his donkey, with his garment, anything that is lost of your brother's. We might put it like this. If you happen to find the cell phone as you're leaving today, and you don't know whose it is because you can't unlock it, finders, keepers, losers. Oh, yeah, you all. Everybody went to middle school. Praise the Lord. That is not true. Well, it can't be true, but it's not supposed to be true. Because there's a responsibility we see here. A responsibility that I owe to God who commands me that I'm to care about my brother's possessions. And a responsibility to my brother or my sister that once they have lost something, that thing does not just immediately go into my pocket. No, you shall take it home. And if it asks to update, you will update it. You shall plug it in so that when they come by to collect the said cell phone, it is full of battery and they can make phone calls or play on Facebook on their way. Not play on Facebook on their way home because you're driving. But that's my modern day interpretation there. If we uh, we brought this in then to to kind of a a question because a lot of what we've been talking about has to do with with practice, what we see here is God laying out a law. If you see an ox wandering down the street, it's not yours. How many of you have seen, this isn't Tennessee, I'm pretty sure you haven't seen oxes wandering. We've stopped in Tennessee, I stopped for donkeys, I stopped for chickens, I stopped for goats, I stopped for sheep. And a horse once, but there was somebody on it. So I'm assuming you haven't had to stop for any of those things. So immediately as you're reading this law, maybe you're at home and you've listened to these sermons up to this point and you've been like, I'm going to do what Jordan says. I'm going to read this book. And you start reading it and you're like, I never see ox and goat. Well, of course you don't, right? There, there's just as we have to be put, put our own self into the text. When you see something, what do you do with that something? That's a practice. But it has much more here because we don't have cell phones. What is this building inside of this people? What is this identity and what is this worldview that is building inside of this people? And the first thing we might point out is you notice that there's private property. 
there's private property. That's not assumed across all cultures and all times. Not everyone believes in private property. The Bible does. This is something that God has gifted you and you are to tend it. And if you lose it, your brother isn't to grab it, take it home and say, it's mine. Rather, there's a sense of private property, but there's also a sense of respect of private property. That when you see something, it doesn't immediately become yours because it's laying on the floor or it's walking down the street. No, it belongs to who it belongs to. And you are responsible for tending that, if it happens to be a stray dog or a cat. If they're ours, you can keep them. I don't want them back. But if there's somebody else's, you keep them, you feed them, you, you know what I mean? You, there's, a, there's a sense of responsibility that's wider here. And if we apply ourselves to this text, we can immediately see that God is not needing to lay down all of the things you tend and give back, but rather laying out this one line. Here's an example, and what does it do? It builds a people who take private property seriously, who practice an honoring of that property, and who want to make sure that those who belong to them because you are not an individual on your own in a world. Rather, you live in a world that God has made, laid down good, value, true, and beautiful things. You are a part of a people who have been called by God to bear witness to those good, powerful, powerful, beautiful, true things. And now you are to live in a certain way. That was a lot. Hopefully you followed that. But... That's, that's what I see coming out of this text. There's so much more than just don't, you know, don't steal the ox you see walking down the road. Don't take advantage of one another. You shouldn't look for opportunities to take advantage. And when there is an opportunity for you to take advantage of someone else, you shouldn't take that opportunity. Rather, you should be a blessing. You might remember that all the way back when God first comes to Abraham and says, you know what, I'm going to make you and all of your children after you my special people, my treasured possessions, so that you can be a blessing. So that you can be a blessing. We aren't just to be hashtag blessed, but to be a blessing as well. Let's move on to the next one, because this is fun and controversial. I love steering clear of controversy. So here we go. Uh, Verse 5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. I was reading a news article this week. I think it was about Caitlyn Jenner. I don't remember now who it was. But it was somebody, and there were so many switching of genders and things like that that I couldn't figure out who I was reading about. Like, I didn't know who was what. We really live in a world that's taken this and and we kind of kind of run with it in some interesting ways. But when I read this text, I don't immediately think of the transgender, LGBTQ plus issues we have out there today. I think of the house that uh, I spent a lot of time in as a kid. There's one of, my, one of my many babysitters, and they were independent, fundamental Baptists. And I learned three things from these people. First, you, if you want to go to heaven, you don't listen to rock and roll. You can listen to country, You can leave anytime. <laughs> I don't know how that breakdown works, but that was the breakdown. You could listen to country, but you couldn't listen to rock. You, listen, you read the King James Version of the Bible. Can I get a witness? Greek and Hebrew, we don't need those. Languages that were written in the Bible, written in, we don't need to put the King James. And I learned that women cannot wear pants. You can, however, wear these. Now I didn't grow up. Now I didn't grow up in, in a fundamental Baptist church, and so I didn't know this 
fact, I'm not even actually sure culottes, something like that, is what they're called. So as a girl, you couldn't wear shorts because of Deuteronomy 22.5. You can't wear shorts because those are short pants. But you can take a skirt, cut it in half. It's no longer shorts. It's now culottes. Thank you. I looked them up. I always thought they were culottes or something. I, I, Google had to correct me, as did this lovely fashion person. Which I think for me lays out a problem. We have a problem. What, the Bible says you know, women shouldn't wear men's clothes. Men shouldn't wear women's clothes. What do we do? What do we do with this text? And I just illustrated for you a very bad way to go about reading this text. Some people do this. They will take the Bible. Men don't wear women's clothes. Women don't wear men's clothes. Men's wear, men wear pants. Women don't wear pants. Ergo, application. Women should not wear pants. However... This misses a key part of what we call hermeneutics or interpretation, the study of scripture. And that is context. Context means before we get to saying, what does this mean for me today? We ask the questions you might have asked in like a journalism or newspaper class. Who, what, where, when, why, and... Oh, man. A lot of journalists here today. You ask those questions, what is happening in this text? Who is, who is, who, what's transpiring here and who is it happening to and why is it happening? You ask those kind of questions. Before you bring it to the 21st century, that's the right one, right? 21st, 21st century, and, uh, and apply it. And the immediate problem is if you, if you take that idea of, well, men always wear pants and women always wear dresses, is that it doesn't take any account of ancient history. So here's a, here's a way to impress all of your friends who are intimate fundamental Baptists. Uh, this is the black obelisk of Shamaliser II. Say that three times fast. Impress everyone. The black obelisk of Shamaliser II. Shamaliser was the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria, Shamaliser, had expanded his empire so far that he'd basically taken over the known world. He actually had gone down into Israel. And he had conquered the larger portion of the people of God. He had conquered the longer portion of, larger portion of Israel. And Jerusalem, in a little bit in the south was still left independent, but they became what we call a vassal state, which means that they paid taxes to Assyria, and Assyria wouldn't kill them all. And so here we have a picture. This is a part of the black obelisk here. The, the obelisk here has is, is got all of these different reliefs of people coming and bowing down and paying homage and paying taxes to Shamaliser. Oh, look at how great Shamaliser is. This is like the Facebook of the ancient world. Twitter of the ancient world, Instagram, whatever it is you use. And here you have a picture of Shamaliser. There he is. And you can tell he's the king because... Awesome beard. And here you can see what they're wearing. I would call that a dress. And here you have Jehu, king of Israel, also in his finest miniskirt. Not quite miniskirt. This is, this is full length. That's covering ankles. But you notice then what we have here, what we have here is that evidence in the ancient world that they didn't wear pants, right? So immediately we're running into some problems. What do we do with this text? Because in the ancient world, clothing is contextual. If you live in a hot climate, arguments about shorts probably aren't happening in Mexico. If you live in Alaska, 
The arguments aren't happening there either, right? <laughs> so what do we do with these texts? We take seriously the context, what is happening around them. And what we know is happening around them is that there were all kinds of gods. If we go all the way back, can we go back? Can we go back? Keep going back too far. Not far enough. Too far. There it is. There were amongst these people two gods, Baal and Asherah, and these were consorts. They were married together, and when they got together to do what married people did, the fertility of the action came down on the land, and the land sprouted good food. Now, what then do you do if you want to worship these two gods, whose most of their life is made up with, you know, Barry White songs? You go to a temple in which you meet a cult uh, prostitute, a cultic prostitute. They had male prostitutes, they had female prostitutes. You would go in and you would, again, turn on Barry White and you would do what would happen. But what we know about these is that gender and who you did it with was very fluid. If you think, like, when you turn on HBO, it's, like, scandalous, I dare you to read ancient texts because... HBO has nothing on these people and the things that they thought of and tried and made and did, right? And so what the Bible is dealing with here is with a culture that they are entering where gender and sexuality, in terms of who you're doing things with, is as fluid, more fluid than than it is today. If you turn on the news and you think, wow, things are really crazy, like I said, go back 3,000 years, it was bananas, So what is he dealing with? That's what they're dealing with. What is God's answer? God's answer is this. He goes back to Genesis just as Jesus goes back to Genesis, just as the law goes back to Genesis, and it says God made two genders. He made male and he made female. And he made those genders so that they can come together, turn on Barry White, and produce children. They don't have to. Paul encourages, he says, listen, if you want to be single for the sake of the kingdom and you just want to pour yourself, because listen, kids are draining. Can I get a witness? They're draining. Poor mom over here is fighting to keep him quiet. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Just let him go. It's fine. I mean, they're draining. And if you want to pour your life into something other than children, you want to pour it into the kingdom? Go nuts, just like me, Paul says. But God has made these two things, and they should go together. And that's how it works. And there is no other way. There, listen, it's not popular. But if you thought that the church was supposed to be popular in the culture where it existed, you have not been reading the same Bible I've been reading. God is very specific. They were, the Christians were scandalous in the ancient world. Christians in the New Testament, just like Jews in the Old Testament, were scandalous because they had a very peculiar version of what you could do with your body, with another body, and it had to do with one man and one woman together for life. That's all it was. It's never been anything different. And if that makes you stick out, a sore thumb, stick out like a sore thumb... That's just the way it is. It's the way it is. That was what we get in the law. That's what we get throughout the Testament of Scripture. That's how we should use it. Again, if you want to wear culottes, go nuts. I'm not discouraging that. Uh, but you don't need to look at, down on anybody who wears shorts. Let's move on. That's enough of that. Verses 6 and 7. I love this verse, these, this section. This is interesting. Again, there's a sense of responsibility that's flowing through all of this. Our responsibility to God. Our responsibility to not cause chaos in the community, which is kind of what we have going on today when we talk about these, these uh, gender issues. It's very chaotic. 
God is a God of order, and that's kind of the way the scriptures portray it. We also have a responsibility to the land. And this has been a particular frustrating thing for me because I watch Christians really get caught up in the right-left Democrat-Republican fights over global warming and, uh, and all of this noise. And for me, that is neither here nor there. Every single one of you should be an environmentalist to some extent because God made the environment. And he did not turn it over to you and say, here, here's an earth you can pillage and destroy. It's all yours. Go nuts. It's God's earth. God owns it. He has given us the task of tending that garden. And if you tend that garden poorly, don't think God won't judge you for it. He wrote it into scripture. Here we have verse six. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree, ooh, yeah, that was a good one. That was, I'm taking that as an amen. Let's just, if you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs, the mother sitting on the young ones or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go. But the young you may take for yourself that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now this has a practical and a theological application. I want to make both. The practical application is just this. If you take everything you can get your hands on, pretty soon how much do you have left? Nothing. So don't be stupid. Like that's my interpretation. <laughs> don't do stupid things, right? You recognize if you kill all the mama birds, there's no more, there's no, you know, there's no more breakfast. And we need our breakfast foods, don't we? Don't take them both. Don't take them both. That's not smart. But I think it has more than this. I think it has far more than this. It has a far deeper and theological power to it than just, you know, we like our eggs and bacon. And we do like our eggs and bacon. And it's this. When God creates the world, Genesis 1 repeats the same line over and over again. You know it because some of you anyway went to Sunday school. He finishes the day. It was evening. It was day. And God looked and saw that it was good. And God looked and it was. And God looked and it was. And God looked and you're getting quieter. Like, like things got worse as they go. They got better as they go. At first we just had light and darkness. Now we got plants and now we got animals. And there's this world that God has made and it is verdant with life and then he takes humankind and he puts it in and he says very good look at this it's a complete picture it's beautiful it's wonderful and then we screwed it all up didn't we and you notice that within the curse the curse doesn't actually fall on adam the curse falls on the land God curses the land and says, now it will bear for you thorns and thistles. You're going to try to tend that land. Anybody ever had a garden and thought, man, if only I could get my crops, to, my, my tomatoes to grow as well as I can get these weeds up. Like these, they need no help whatsoever. When's the last time you watered a weed? They just, they show up. You have to work to keep the plants alive. That's a curse. The land suffers the good earth that God made suffers because of what we did and what we continue to do is we strip mine mountains ripping the tops off them making a blight to the communities around them we do all kinds of things and we continue this process and God says listen I'm putting you in a good land and you need to tend it properly 
so that it can be an image. In fact, I really love this passage, and I've shared it before. This is one of my, I love Romans 8. It's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. I want you to pay attention to the words that we have here. The creation. That's rocks, trees, plants, birds, and the creation. That's not you. Everything else that God has made is doing what? It is waiting in eager expectation for the sons of God, the daughters of God, the people of God, for them to be revealed in their glory, for God to come and set things right with us. For creation was subjected to frustration. The word there could also be futility, meaninglessness. We subject the world to meaninglessness. Not be because of its own choice, but because of the will who subjected it. That's you, that's me, that's those who have inherited Adam's sin. In hope that the creation itself, creation groans, it waits for itself to be released from the bondage of decay and brought to the same glorious freedom that you and I enjoy. Because we are sinless in the sense that Jesus has taken those sins away. And the earth is waiting for that curse to be removed. That's the hope. That's what Revelation gives us, this image of, of the glory of God falling down and, and, and transforming all things of a new heavens and a new earth and a people who will now live in it without subjecting one another or the land to sin. And so it is written within here, this great word of grace, and it's a very small line, right, that we could say, well, okay, I won't do that, but I'll, I'll strip mine this thing or I'll, I'll dump toxic waste in this place or whatever, No, it's meant to do far more than this. This is one example of a practice, but it builds an identity in a worldview. The worldview begins with God who has made it and who has handed it to to us, his children, to take care of. And that taking care of, this is one example of, but you are expected to be smart and to be wise and to use the faculties that God gave you so that you can do that with all of the, the ways that we engage the world around us. There is great grace. Uh, there is great grace in the Old Testament, no matter what some megachurch pastors say. <laughs> There's, uh, the next passage is very similar. Let me get to it. Oh, I passed it, didn't I? Yeah, verse 8. Verse 8. Look at verse 8. This is the next one. So this would seem like various laws. This isn't another jelly bean out of the bag, but rather it connects as well, similarly, to what we owe one another. Look at this. When you build a new house, what a random thing to throw in there. We've been all over the place, haven't we? When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet, a small, a small you know, lip on the top of your roof, that you may not bring guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Because even if it's an accident, it's still a guilt of blood that falls on Any time you are irresponsible and you cause harm in the law, you are responsible for righting that wrong. So, for instance, our house, uh, those little spindle things that they put, you know, uh, to, what are they called, Mark? I don't know what they're called. Are they called something? What? Ballisters. I had to look up what parapet meant, too. So, <laughs> yeah. So, these things are too far apart, and Ezri has tried to commit suicide through them dozens of times already. Right? Irresponsible craftsmanship. We've had to put, you know, this plastic level around there because they didn't think about, hey, maybe a, maybe a one-year-old could really just launch herself through this thing 
And Esri's that kid. She just wants to launch herself at everything. If you see her, you know, put your hand on her, stop her, because she'll try to do it. Why is it that the Bible does not have, and I looked this up for Portage, 743 ordinances? We just have one right here. Do you see that? When you build a house, think about other people. When you build a house, think about other people. When you build something, think about other people. Because there's a sense of responsibility that now lays, not just between me and God, not just between me and the land, but to those who are going to come and they're going to spend, they're going to spend, spend time at my house or in our building or in our church. We need to think about those kinds of things. Because it isn't just up to you. You're not just an individual. You're not just, God can judge me and so I can do whatever I want. No, there is a, a sense of, of connection that we have as the people of God to one another. And that's what we're seeing emerge out of Deuteronomy, that God, as he builds This people, he's giving them specific practices, and they may seem small. If you're reading through and you read, well, you should, next time you build a house, build a parapet, you just be like, oh, whatever, and you move into the next thing, because that seems meaningless, but it isn't meaningless. It is driving home this point of what we do affects who we are and how we view the world. How do you view the world? Who are you? And how does that change what you do, and how you live. That's what God is after. Every single law here has meaning, has power, reveals to us something more than just the sum of its parts, asks us questions and tells us things about God and what God wants from us, who we are. The last one I want to go over today because we are... um, running out of time, is verses 9 through 12. And this is my favorite passage, I think, of the Old Testament. I actually kind of like the one in Numbers a little better, but we're in Deuteronomy, so it's all right. You shall not sow your vineyard with two two kinds of seeds, lest the whole yield be forfeited, the crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. (laughs) You shall not... Sorry. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. You shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of your garment with which you cover yourself. Isn't that tremendous? No. Uh, I think it's tremendous. Uh, Because it doesn't seem to make any purposeful sense. Like, why not a donkey and an ox? Like... Does that not work? And what's wrong with polyester and all the other things? And I mean, there's a lot wrong with polyester. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I don't know about wool and cotton, though. Those might be okay together. And what about four tassels? Like, that's a strange thing. And, and it's interesting when, you, when I got, you know, we were talking about the Bible and context and application. Some of these texts have problems because we have to guess at the context. Like, what's the purpose of four tassels? And some of them say, well, then... The Israelites were really concerned with nudity, and so they put, they put uh, tassels so that their shirt wouldn't, like, rise up. And, I mean, like, maybe, I guess. But I don't know, like, everybody's, like, showing their bellies or something in Israel. I don't know that that's that big a deal. 
I think this text, and I want to leave you with this, and maybe you can think about this as you go home if I haven't already given you something to think about. Think about this, talk about this, mull it over. One of the things that I love about this text is that it doesn't seem to make any practical sense, which begins to ask the question, why would God include that in the law? Why would we, for the past 3,000 years, recite this thing and continue, continue on with it? And I think the answer is this, because God is making a people who look different. No one else in Israel is running around, or no one else in the ancient world is running around with four tassels on their cloak. God is just saying, here is something that makes you different. Here's something that sets you apart. When you happen to go to another city or another country and you do some shopping or you happen to have a business deal and you're you know, going down the road and you, you're on your business trip and you're talking with people, they're going to be able to look at you, see those tassels and say, what's that about? What's that about? Now, it's interesting when we go forward into the New Testament, those tassels, anybody got tassels on today? Any tassel of any kind? No tassel, tassel necklace, nothing? All right. The New Testament doesn't reiterate any of these kinds of laws. There's, there's no laws about tassels. There's no laws about mixing things together. Why? Because there is a spiritual truth, truth that is being revealed here. We are called to become the children of God, and no one stood out into society more than Jesus. He was a walking tassel. Sort of, you get the point. My encouragement then for you as you leave here today is to begin thinking about the ways in which God has called you to stand out. To think about not only who we are responsible to in terms of God, in terms of others, in terms of the land that God has allowed for us to live on and to tend and to be good with, but to think about how it is that you, if you're here and you're a believer today, how it is that you, when you go on that business trip or when you go to work or when you're out with your kids at the park, how it is that you stand out as a person of grace, as a person of truth, as a person of love, as a person who wears the name Jesus. How is God making you different? And how can you display that for the world? Let's stand as we sing this last song.